1: Walking the Path with the Buddha. I'd like to welcome you to our Pali Canon and English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. Today we're in Volume 5, which is titled The First Stage of Enlightenment, Stream into this book is all about teachings that the buddha shared in terms of helping us understand what it takes to get to this important stage of enlightenment the first stage because then it really sets you up in order to make the rest of the journey to the enlightened mental state being an arahant or the fourth stage of enlightenment so i'd like to welcome all of you who are joining either in zoom facebook youtube on our podcast or anywhere else that you're seeing this i'd like to welcome you to our class The way that we do our classes is we do meditation as a way to kind of prepare the mind for the class ahead and kind of allow you to just kind of do a little top up, you know, kind of like a 10 or 15 minute meditation just to kind of prepare the mind for the class ahead and kind of help you to develop some concentration and remove any clutter that might exist in the mind. And then afterwards, we'll start going through the actual chapters that we studied this week, which are chapters 31 through 40. These are 10 chapters and you can get these books online by going to buddedailywisdom.com. you'll see the button for free books or free downloads. You can actually acquire these books at no cost. Just download them or take them and print them. Or if you'd like a really nice bound copy, Amazon sells them where you can get a nice binding and a nice book. You can get them that way. And what we do is we actually have somebody read the chapter during the class, so I'll be displaying them on the screen. So if this is your first time joining us, it's okay because just that you haven't read is okay because we'll be actually be displaying them in the class, and then I'll teach a bit about what those teachings are related to the Buddhist teachings and then open up to any questions that you guys might have. The great thing about downloading the book ahead of time is that there are explanations in the Chapters. So each chapter, it'll have the Buddha's words. And then I've explained what I feel the Buddha is actually teaching as part of what he's sharing. But you shouldn't rely just solely on what I'm sharing. Do your own learning, reflection, and practice to see the truth for yourself. But through downloading the books, you'll actually have a nice comprehensive set of teachings from the Buddha that will help you to progress and actually attain enlightenment. And then we use these Saturdays as a way to come together based on everybody reading throughout the week and come together and discuss the teachings and get help. So thank you all for joining. I appreciate your dedication and diligence to be learning and practicing these teachings. Let's go ahead and do meditation and then afterwards we'll dive into the actual book starting with chapter 31. So here in this class, we typically don't do as much guidance or any guidance really at all Because students are further along in their practice. I might just do a little bit after chanting in order just to kind of help anybody who's joining us for the first time to start doing breathing mindfulness meditation. But go ahead and make yourself comfortable in the seated position, which is typically what we do in class, but you're welcome to do lying or standing as well and then if you'd like to join along for the chance you can join for the chance and then afterwards i'll kind of guide you in getting your breath established and moving deeper into meditation
2: tang ma khwanang apivate ami savakha to hamakwatta tammo dama namasami SUPATHE PANO IMHAG VATTO SA VAKA SANGKHO SANGGHANG NAMAMI NAPMORH SAH BHAG Ara to some masa putasa Nap Ara to some masa putasa Nap more ARAH TOA SAMA SAMBHU arahang ITI we chanang samuno sakato kavito anu tero purisa satatawa manu asanang. Okay,
1: just establish a nice, natural, steady breath. Breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. As you're establishing the breath, Focus the mind on the sound of the breath or the sensation of air moving into the nose. This is the present moment. Breathing in. In, out. Focusing the mind on the breath. Whenever the mind moves off the breath, Cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. I'm going to let you focus on this meditation of just training the mind to be aware whenever it's off the breath. And then cutting off and letting go of anything that the mind is longing for, that it's moved off the breath. Cut off, let go of that thought, idea, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in, in, out.
2: Ara ra tammo dhammang namas amin supathe pano imbhagavatto sa vaka sangkho sangkhang Napmoid her some Napmoh Ara we all
1: right if you guys would like to make your way out of meditation go ahead and move to the learning portion of our class where We'll just have a student read each chapter one by one, and then after the student's done reading, I'll teach whatever teachings that might come to mind that I'd like to share with you guys about the particular chapter, and then open up for any questions that you guys might have on the specific chapter. The way that you ask questions is put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Our moderators will see that and be sure your question gets asked during the class. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly in order to uh, get help with any questions that you might have. So I'll go ahead and turn things over to all of you and specifically Manal and Basim are our moderators today.
3: Hey, teacher, David, we'll go to Miranda to she will help read chapter 31. Perfect. The noble method
4: is to understand dependent origination And what is the noble method that he has clearly seen and thoroughly penetrated with wisdom? Here, householder, the noble disciple attends closely and carefully to a dependent origination itself thus. When this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the elimination of this, that is eliminated. That is, with ignorance as condition, Volitional formations come to be. With Volitional formations as condition consciousness. With consciousness as condition, name and form. With name and form as condition, the six sense spaces. With the six sense bases as condition, contact. With contact as condition, feeling. With feeling as condition, craving. With craving as condition, clinging. With clinging as condition, existence. With existence as condition, birth. With birth as condition, aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair come to be. Such is the cause of this whole mass of discontentedness. But with the remainderless fading away and elimination of ignorance comes elimination of volitional formations, choices, and decisions. With the elimination of volitional formations, elimination of consciousness. With the elimination of consciousness comes elimination of name and form. With the elimination of name and form comes elimination of the sixth sense bases. With elimination of the sixth sense bases comes elimination of contact. With the elimination of contact comes elimination of feeling. With the elimination of feeling comes elimination of craving. With the elimination of craving comes elimination of clinging. With the elimination of clinging comes elimination of existence. With the elimination of existence comes elimination of birth. With the elimination of birth, the elimination of aging and death, sour sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure and despair is eliminated. Such is the elimination of this whole mass of discontentedness. This is the noble method that he has clearly seen and thoroughly penetrated with wisdom.
1: All right, thank you, Miranda so here this is one of the things that this book is really bringing to the attention of a practitioner is that dependent origination is the ultimate truth of the buddha and it's important to see the causality or the cause and effect that is happening based on this condition existing then this next thing comes to be and then with that next thing existing the next thing comes to be and the buddha walks you through step by step here to show you what leads to birth and the cycle of rebirth, and he also shows how discontentedness arises, and it all comes back to this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality. But to start understanding dependent origination, even though we talked about it in chapter 14 and we discussed it more in detail there, so I'll open up to any questions you guys have about dependent origination, but just as kind of a starting point for someone who might be tuning in for the first time, and hasn't heard me teach all the way through step-by-step dependent origination, one of the things to look at is this first part right here that the Buddha is sharing. What dependent origination is, is that you understand this causality or this cause and effect of things, and it helps you to understand not only what causes discontentedness, but what keeps you in the cycle of rebirth. So this whole natural law of gamma and these natural laws of existence, it's based on this cause and effect or causality, that when this exists, that comes to be. And with the arising of this, that arises. And then conversely, when this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the elimination of this, that is eliminated. So one way to now take that into this section, which is dependent origination, is that with ignorance, that unknowing of true reality, then we make decisions. That's what volitional formations are. These are choices and decisions. So our choices and decisions through ignorance are uninformed and unwise. Therefore, it leads to continued consciousness and this mind coming into existence. And then with the mind, it then connects to name and form, which is essentially the physical body. And then when there's the physical body, there's these six sense bases, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, bodily contact, and the mind. These six sense bases is how discontentedness comes into the mind. And that happens through contact. When there's contact with these six sense bases, then there's either... Pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant that arise. And then there's cravings that are formed. This is the mental longing with a strong eagerness, longing for those pleasant feelings. Then the mind wants to cling to these pleasant feelings and hold on to them permanently. And that's what leads to existence in the cycle of rebirth. Because of birth, then there is aging and death there's this sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair, essentially this discontentedness. This is the whole cause of this massive discontentedness. So now that's that first part here, that when this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. Now this next part, when this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the elimination of this, that is eliminated. So this next part, the Buddha is now explaining that through eliminating ignorance or this unknowing of true reality, then we eliminate these uninformed, unwise decisions that ultimately lead to consciousness, right? So now he's going to talk about how to unravel this whole massive amount of discontentedness. It's through transforming this ignorance into wisdom. So we eliminate ignorance by acquiring wisdom, Through learning, reflecting, and practicing the Buddhist teachings, not believing in them, but practicing them to see the truth for ourselves. And then we acquire wisdom when we see the truth. And by now transforming that ignorance into wisdom, now we make wise decisions. We are no longer making unwise decisions, we're making wise decisions. And now our consciousness, because there is no unwise decisions, now we essentially are going through the elimination phase of eliminating the cycle of rebirth where we're no longer born because there's no longer consciousness. Consciousness can't sustain itself if all ignorance has been eliminated. That now when we transform the mind away from craving, anger, and ignorance, those three unwholesome roots or those three poisons, then consciousness can't continue. It's not possible. So therefore, we don't take physical form into the physical body. We don't develop these sixth sense bases. We don't have contact because there are no sixth sense bases. We don't experience these discontent feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. All craving has been eliminated. Clinging has been eliminated. Therefore, we eliminate existence in the cycle of rebirth we eliminate birth itself, because there is no birth and we've eliminated birth, then we eliminate aging and death. There's no longer any aging and death when there's no birth. So therefore, we've eliminated all sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair, which is how we eliminate this whole mass of discontentedness. So what the Buddha is saying here is that a person who is a noble disciple or someone who is in this first stage of enlightenment as a stream enter will understand this noble method, this noble method of understanding the cycle of rebirth and understanding how discontentedness comes to be. They will have clearly seen it and thoroughly penetrated it with wisdom. A person who's in the first stage of enlightenment as a stream enter will not have eliminated all discontentedness yet they would have diminished it significantly but they would at least see clearly that this whole mass of discontentedness is being explained through this ultimate truth and now with that understanding in the first stage of enlightenment now they have that and all the other teachings that a stream would have to be able to make the rest of their journey to enlightenment to the fourth stage of enlightenment any questions on this chapter?
3: Looks like Bassem has his hand raised. We'll go to him.
5: Thanks, Mira. We have a question on Facebook from Biblob. He asks, Sayer, how can we eliminate contact?
1: We eliminate contact through eliminating all these other conditions. So if we go to here. So once you've eliminated ignorance or the unknowing of true reality, then what the Buddha is saying is that you were no longer born. And when you're no longer born, then you're not going to have these six sense bases, and there's not going to be contact. But as long as you're in this existence, there's going to be contact, right? There's going to be contact. But what you're doing is you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment. You're eliminating clinging. So the Four Noble Truths penetrates right to the heart of dependent origination, and kind of shows you that by eliminating craving, desire, attachment, this clinging, the mental longing and strong eagerness is the craving. The clinging is holding on real tight. By eliminating those in the mind through the training of the Eightfold Path, now you unravel all of this. But in order to eliminate craving and clinging, you have to eliminate ignorance. You have to work on building your wisdom to understand how to eliminate craving and clinging. But as long as you're in this life, you're going to have contact. But when there is no craving and there is no clinging, then you're not going to experience discontentedness in this life. And then when you no longer experience discontentedness in this life, the mind is enlightened because you've unraveled all of this and there's no longer going to be any birth for a future life to experience contact. So you will always have contact, but how you react to that is if the mind has this craving, anger, and ignorance, it's going to react in unwholesome ways. Whereas if you've eliminated craving, anger, and ignorance, the mind's enlightened. When you have contact, the mind isn't going to be discontent. It's not going to be shaken up as a result of that contact. Where in the unenlightened state, even in this first stage of enlightenment, one might have this agreeable and disagreeable contact. Whereas if you have agreeable contact, there's going to be these pleasant feelings that arise. Whereas if you have disagreeable contact, there's going to be these painful feelings that arise. But by the time you eliminate central desire, by the time you get to that third stage of enlightenment, that's where you've eliminated central desire, there's no longer any agreeable or disagreeable contact. It's just contact. And now the mind can reside content no matter what's coming through the sixth sense basis. But that's what part of that training is. So while you're in existence, you will have contact. But when the mind has eliminated its pollution of mind, then it won't experience discontentedness as a result of the contact. And then having done that, there won't be a rebirth, so there won't be continuous existence where there's contact in the future. Thanks,
5: Tishan. No more question.
1: Okay, so off to chapter 32.
5: So we'll go to Boston for that. The little bit of soil in the fingernail. Monks, what do you think? Which is more, the little bit of soil that I have taken up in my fingernail or this great earth? Venerable Sayer, the great earth is more. The little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his fingernail is insignificant. Compared to the great earth, That little bit of soil is not calculable, does not bear comparison, does not amount even to a fraction. So two monks for a noble disciple, a person accomplished in view who has made the breakthrough, the discontentedness that has been destroyed and eliminated is more, while that which remains is insignificant. Compared to the former mass of discontentedness, that has been destroyed and eliminated. The letter is not calculable, does not bear comparison, does not amount even to a fraction, as there is a maximum of seven more lives. He is one who understands as it really is. This is discontentedness. This is the cause of the discontentedness. This is the elimination of discontentedness. This is a way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness.
1: All right. Thank you, Bosom. So here, the Buddha uses this analogy multiple times in his teachings about this little bit of soil under his fingernail he uses it in many different teachings whenever he would like to talk about something that's so big and so significant versus something that's very small so you'll see this same analogy used in different ways so whenever you see the buddha starting off talking like this don't necessarily assume it's the same one that you've seen before because i've seen at least three four five six different ways that he will use this analogy to explain a certain point that he's trying to make. And here he's describing that this little bit of soil that's taken up in his fingernail is is so small compared to all the dirt or soil in the entire earth. And he explains that the same thing can be said about someone who's accomplished in view or someone who has made the breakthrough, someone who's attained this first stage of enlightenment. They've eliminated so much discontentedness in their mind that the amount that's still remaining in the mind of a stream enterer that first stage of enlightenment, is insignificant compared to the massive amount that they've eliminated in the past. So this is where I share that a person who's in the first stage of enlightenment will have significantly diminished their discontentedness, and they will be experiencing sporadic discontentedness here and there, but it's nothing like what you would have experienced prior to being on this path or even in the first part of your training and development. By the time you get to that first stage of enlightenment, you've overcome so many craving-desire attachments, and you've let go of so many of them, that the mind is now experiencing a very diminished amount of discontentedness. And that's what the Buddha is explaining here, that it doesn't even compare to what you've experienced in the past. And he says the reason why is because this is a person who understands This is discontentedness, the cause, the elimination, and the way leading to the elimination. This is the Four Noble Truths. Whenever you see this, these lines he's pointing to the four noble truths because that's really the beginning of the path to understand the four noble truths is to establish right view and really get started on this path without understanding the four noble truths a person would never be able to make the breakthrough to understanding what the real cause of discontentedness is so therefore they wouldn't be able to eliminate it so you see continuously in the buddhist teachings where he's constantly pointing to the four noble truths as being the real kind of beginning of the path and then you also see him in multiple places encourage his students to make this effort to learn the four noble truths so rather than just say the four noble truths he's you know kind of spelling it out here by saying this is discontentedness that's the first noble truth this is the cause of discontentedness that's the second noble truth this is the elimination of discontentedness the third noble truth this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentness, which is the fourth noble truth which happens to be the guiding people to the eightfold path so here by pointing to the four noble truths he's pointing to the four noble truths but he's also in some ways pointing to the eightfold path too because those things are interlinked that the four noble truths connect into the eightfold path as this is the way to attain enlightenment and for somebody who has learned and developed their practice with the four noble truths and the eightfold path, what the Buddha is explaining here is that okay, they would have significantly diminished their discontentedness, and there's very little remaining compared to what they've experienced in the past. Questions on this chapter?
3: Yes, Teacher David. Question: uh, Would you would you say that what is left, as described in this analogy with the soil that is beneath the fingernail, uh, which is remaining in that that being's life? um however insignificant that amount is it is um also known that uh perhaps what is remaining is probably the most difficult and most challenging to eradicate
1: potentially it's the attachments that have been holding on the longest but at that point you will have all the tools that you need in which to eliminate it so while they might be a bit more challenging you have a lot more wisdom to be able to face those challenges so by the time somebody gets to stream entry, they would have been you know, working closely with a the teacher. They would have developed their practice really well. They would have access to the resources of the Buddhist teachings. They would have so many tools on board in the mind in terms of wisdom that now, with these more challenging aspects of what they are to confront, they have the tools in which to accomplish that. In our last class, I talked about you know kind of being at base camp of Mount Everest and getting to the summit as being enlightenment. Well, just getting to base camp is a lot of work in terms of if you've ever thought about ever hiking Mount Everest and going to the summit. It's a lot of work just to get to base camp. Not many people do that in this world, choose to make all the effort and apply the energy to get to base camp. But once you get to base camp, it's harder to get from base camp to the summit But by that point, you have all the tools, you have the confidence, you have the wisdom, you've eliminated the doubt. Remember that second fetter of doubt. You no longer have any doubt that you'll be able to do this. If somebody was at base camp at Mount Everest and they had doubt whether they could make it to the summit, they're not going to be able to make it because they're going to have doubt all the way through. So the Buddha is really setting up a practitioner and a student here to get to that first stage of enlightenment and have all the tools that you need in order to face any additional challenges along the path.
3: Okay, thank you. Doesn't appear there are any other questions for this chapter.
1: All right, so we'll move okay. on to chapter 33.
3: Okay, chapter 33 The achievement of other communities cannot compare with the achievement of a noble disciple. Monks, suppose that a man would place in Sinero the the king of mountains, seven grains of gravel the size of mung beans. What do you think, monks? Which is more? The seven grains of gravel the size of mung beans that have been placed there, or Scenero the king of mountains. Venerable, sir, Scenero the king of mountains is more. The seven grains of gravel the size of mung beans are insignificant. They do not amount to a hundredth part or a thousandth part. Part or a hundred thousandth part of Sanaru the king of mountains so too monks, the achievements of ascetics Brahmins, and wanderers of other communities do not amount to a hundredth part part or a thousand part or a hundred thousand part of the achievement of a noble disciple a person accomplishing view who has made the breakthrough so great an achievement monks is a person accomplishing view so great in direct
1: knowledge experience great thank you Manol. All right, so here, remember during the lifetime of the Buddha, there were many different groups of people that were thinking that it was their teachings that led to enlightenment. There were various teachers and various groups that had organized around these teachers. And then there was the Buddhist group, too. You know, there's not this outward appearance of, this person is a Buddha or this person isn't a Buddha. So people wouldn't have been able to necessarily determine during their lifetime that the Buddha was actually a Buddha. He was just another practitioner to some people, but to people who were deeply studying with him and knew his history and could observe the benefits to the condition of their mind, they knew he was a Buddha. But these other Groups didn't necessarily know that. And these other groups would oftentimes come in contact with the community that the Buddha was leading, and they would oftentimes move over to studying with the Buddha as well. And what the Buddha is saying here is that these other communities that are learning and practicing whatever teachings they're practicing, he's saying they're not developing their mind as much as a noble disciple. A noble disciple to the Buddha is someone who's learning his teachings very closely. And he's saying the achievement of being able to break through to the Four Noble Truths and understanding what is discontentedness, the cause, the elimination, and the way forward. Once someone's made this breakthrough, then they can make this great accomplishment or this achievement that the Buddha is explaining that they will have this direct experience or this direct knowledge of being able to understand what is causing discontentedness and how to eliminate it. So he's comparing and contrasting his community here in a humble way. You know, not looking down, not talking negative about other uh, communities, but just saying, okay, you know, if you're able to make this breakthrough, then you will have accomplished much more and achieved much more than what we see in these other communities. Questions on this one?
3: Doesn't appear there are any questions for this chapter.
1: All right, so we'll move to chapter 34.
3: Miranda will read this one.
4: A noble one with developed sense bases, and how Ananda is one a noble one with developed sense spaces. Here, Ananda, when a monk sees a form with the eye, hears a sound with the ear, smells an odor with the nose, tastes a flavor with the tongue, touches a physical object with the body, recognizes a mental object with the mind, there arises in him what is agreeable. There arises. In what is disagreeable, there arises what is both agreeable and disagreeable. If he should aspire, may I reside perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive? He resides perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive. If he should aspire, may I reside perceiving the repulsive in the unrepulsive? He resides perceiving the repulsive in the unrepulsive. If he should aspire, May I reside perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive and the unrepulsive? He resides perceiving the unrepulsive in that. If he should aspire, may I reside perceiving the repulsive in the unrepulsive and the repulsive? He resides perceiving the repulsive in that. If he should aspire, may I, avoiding both the repulsive and unrepulsive, reside in equanimity, mindful and fully aware? He resides in equanimity towards that. Mindful and fully aware. Ananda, that is how one is a noble disciple, a noble one with developed sense bases.
1: All right. Thank you, Miranda. So, here the Buddha is talking about these sense bases and what I was discussing just a little bit ago about how there's this agreeable contact through the six sense bases of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, bodily contact in the mind. And then there's these disagreeable contacts through those same six sense spaces that everybody kind of has. Everybody has a certain way of looking at the world, and we have these unique agreeable contacts and these disagreeable contacts. And when there's agreeable contacts, then the mind's going to arise pleasant feelings. When there's disagreeable contacts, the mind's going to arise painful feelings. And the Buddha uses that wording here where he talks about agreeable and disagreeable at the beginning of this teaching, But then he kind of switches and he uses this word unrepulsive in the repulsive so unrepulsive would be like agreeable if something is unrepulsive to you that means it's agreeable or if something is repulsive to you that means it's disagreeable so what the buddha is saying here is may i reside perceiving the agreeable in the disagreeable so if you see something that's disagreeable to the eyes or you hear something that's disagreeable to the ears or odors or flavors or bodily contact or certain things in the mind that you feel are disagreeable, the Buddha is saying, you know, try to perceive it as being agreeable, right? And this is what's going to help you to move the mind to this contentedness because agreeable is on one side, disagreeable is on the other. Or the other way to say that is Unrepulsive is on one side, repulsive is on the other side. So what you would like to do is this thing that's repulsive and disagreeable is you'd like to kind of move more to the middle where the mind is no longer perceiving that as something disagreeable. And you also would like to move the mind to this unrepulsive thing or this agreeable thing that the mind's taking pleasant feelings in. You would like to move the mind to the middle where it's no longer viewing that as agreeable or unrepulsive. So these different statements that the Buddha is saying is just kind of different versions of that. This first one is being able to view the disagreeable as agreeable, or being able to observe the repulsive as unrepulsive. That's that first statement. The second one that he's saying is being able to perceive the repulsive in the unrepulsive. So this is taking something that you feel agreeable towards but kind of seeing it as disagreeable, like I'm not interested in having these agreeable thoughts and arising these pleasant feelings. Let me not latch onto that. Let me not cling to that. Let me kind of view that as being repulsive and not being interested in allowing the mind to cling to these agreeable contacts through the sixth sense basis. And then the next one, he says, Perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive and unrepulsive. So when we have these disagreeable contacts or these agreeable contacts, seeing that as agreeable. And then the next one is kind of another slant of that is being able to perceive the repulsive in the unrepulsive and the repulsive. So when we have these agreeable and disagreeable contacts, seeing that as repulsive. So these are just the ways. The Buddha is essentially saying, bring the mind to the middle. Okay. This last one is what really kind of sums it up and brings it all together for you. Is that may I avoid both the repulsive and unrepulsive. So what he's guiding you to here is saying, may I not perceive the disagreeable, the repulsive. And may I not perceive the unrepulsive or the agreeable let me reside in equanimity where the mind is calm composed evenness of temper let me have mindfulness or be mindful and fully aware fully aware is concentration this is where i will typically say that if you have calm mind then you can have mindfulness or awareness of mind with awareness of mind you can have concentration and when you have concentration then you can access wisdom So what the Buddha is doing here is he's guiding you to no longer allow your mind to be shaken up by these repulsive and unrepulsive contacts, or no longer allow your mind to be shaken up by agreeable and disagreeable contacts, because these things are all impermanent. If we allow these pleasant feelings to arise, these painful feelings to arise, then the mind can't be calm, mindful, and concentrated. So he's guiding you here to let go of all of that stuff, avoid clinging to either the repulsive or the unrepulsive, and just see it as contact. It's just contact, not view it as agreeable or disagreeable or unrepulsive and repulsive. Just reside with calmness, mindfulness, and concentration, because then you can access wisdom. Or his words here are reside in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. And then that's where he says okay if you reside this way then that is how a noble one develops the six sense bases that you no longer have this sensual desire where the mind is longing through the six sense bases but now the mind is restrained the mind is now guarded because it's no longer viewing things as being agreeable and disagreeable or unrepulsive and repulsive it just understands that these things are all impermanent and you don't need to perceive them in one way or another. It's just contact through the six sense bases. And by residing with equanimity, mindful and fully aware, or by residing with calmness, mindfulness and concentration, now you can access wisdom and make wise decisions throughout your day. That's gonna to lead to wholesome outcomes. Questions on this one?
3: Question, teacher David. For agreeable contact and, and disagreeable contact, um, which um, arrives through the sense basis of form, sound, odor, flavor, physical object, mental object, um, if there is an experience where one can can um, understand that something is that you one is in danger or someone else is in danger, um, surely that. Um, the first thought would be that this is something that is disagreeable in nature. So the mind may interpret that contact or, you know, the, um, the observation of something happening, which is, um someone or someone or yourself in danger would that wouldn't that automatically translate to um something that is in a disagreeable contact through the sixth sense basis i'm trying to understand the nuance between uh how not to um to relate to disagreeable and agreeable in terms of something that is in immediate danger
1: Yeah, sure. So what you would like to move to is rather than seeing it as agreeable and disagreeable, you see it as this is something that I prefer. So if my son and I were out in our front yard and a dog came and attacked him, I don't see it as agreeable or disagreeable. I see this as something I would prefer this not to happen. And now that I see this dog coming to attack my son, I will take decisions that eliminate this from happening. But while doing that, remain calm, mindful, concentrated so that I can access wisdom and I don't make this situation worse. Because if I see it as a disagreeable thing, now the mind is shaken up by it and now the mind isn't calm, it isn't mindful, it isn't concentrated and I can't access wisdom. So it's more about that you prefer that this dog doesn't attack your child. And now you take appropriate steps to ensure that you resolve that situation with calmness, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. So switching it from agreeable and disagreeable in the mind to this is something I would prefer to happen or not prefer to happen. Okay,
3: all right, I see that, that uh, switch in. Um, understanding that you it's a you prefer something to be um, in a certain way Um, so what i'm understanding is that if you deem something disagreeable or agreeable at that very moment you cannot tap into the full wisdom
1: right because the mind's going to be shaken up because if it's something agreeable then there's going to be these pleasant feelings and if it's disagreeable there's going to be these painful feelings and now you can't tap into the wisdom and make appropriate decisions but when you can reside just knowing that you can't control this outside world there's you can't control what happens all you all you can do is observe what's happening and now that you see this impermanence you would prefer this not to happen, or you would prefer this to happen, and now you just take appropriate decisions with wisdom to move this thing that you would prefer not to happen, or this thing you would prefer to happen, to move it closer to what you would like it to be, but all the time not being attached to any particular outcome. By training the mind to not be clinging or craving any particular outcome, Now you can have that calmness, that mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom.
3: Thank you. I believe Ali has a question. We'll go to her.
4: Hi,
3: teacher David. So from my experience, it's easier for me to bring the agreeable contact to the middle than the unagreeable contacts to the middle. Is this normal?
1: Yeah. Everybody can have a different experience because those pleasant feelings, the mind is still somewhat, you know, happy or excited. So, oh, okay, let me bring that back. But the painful feelings of sadness and anger and frustration or jealousy or resentment, that's a lot harder sometimes to kind of bring to the middle. It almost feels like you're walking through mud sometimes. So it's both being caused by the same thing. And... By getting your arms around the pleasant feelings, it will help you to not experience the painful feelings. Because as long as we allow the mind to keep experiencing those pleasant feelings, then it's only a matter of time before whatever's causing those pleasant feelings becomes impermanent. And now that it's no longer existing, that's where the painful feelings are coming in. So by you focusing on the pleasant feelings, that's why the Buddha listed it as pleasant, painful, neither painful nor pleasant, because really getting your arms around the pleasant feelings is the best way to really kind of make a, a path towards eliminating all discontentedness. Oftentimes, we see the painful feelings much easier because they are so impactful to the mind. And like you say, they're also oftentimes very harder, much harder to get rid of. But when you understand that it's really these pleasant feelings that are essentially by longing for those and clinging to those, we're inviting in the painful feelings. Now you understand, like, okay, let me get my arms around these pleasant feelings, and that's ultimately what's going to help you to not experience the painful feelings anymore. Um, oh, I
3: just want to Is my zoom
1: looking okay now. I'm hearing a lot of uh, high-pitched sounds. I just put you on mute. I'm hearing a lot of high-pitched sounds and a, a lot of background noise it might just be your computer it might not actually be in your environment it sounds like your mic or something in the computer or your device might not be working exactly right i put you on mute you'll have to unmute yourself if you would like to talk again okay so we'll move to the next person i think bosom or manal uh have a question sure we'll go to basim well on facebook we have a question
5: from yuma Hi, sir. If an ordained practitioner is given non-vegetarian food during receiving alms from lay people, will they accept it or simply reject it?
1: Every practitioner is different. The way the Buddha taught is to accept all offerings, but whether they ingest it or not is up to them. My guidance would be if you're going to make an offering to an ordained practitioner to make an offering that is vegan so that there are no animal products in the offering but the way that the buddha taught us is to accept all offerings and then what you choose to do with it at that point is up to you as an individual so if somebody offered me a plate of meat i would probably accept it but i wouldn't actually ingest it i'd probably give it to an animal or something like that but i don't think people who study with me as a student would offer me a plate of meat because they know that i don't eat meat And this is where it really helps to be making offerings to ordained practitioners and teachers who you have a relationship with so that you know that, okay, let me respect their practice and offer them something that is beneficial for them. And if we offer food items that aren't meat, that would be best in situations. So that's what I would suggest for you to do. But whether somebody accepts it or reject it, it's... Each individual practitioner that chooses to do that And what they choose to actually do And how they choose to practice
3: Doesn't appear there are any other questions, teacher David
1: Okay, so let's move on to the next chapter
5: We'll go to Bassem. Difference in, un, in understanding of teachings Between a stream enterer and an arahant First discourse Monks, there are these five aggregates Subject to clinging What five? The form aggregate, subject to clinging. The feeling aggregate, subject to clinging. The perception aggregate, subject to clinging. The volitional formations, choices, decisions aggregate, subject to clinging. The consciousness aggregate, subject to clinging. When monks and noble disciple understands as, as they really are the cause and the passing away, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of these five aggregates, subject to clinging. Marks, then he is called a noble disciple who is a stream enterer, no longer bound to the nether world, fixed in destiny with enlightenment as his destination. When Marx, having understood the cause and the passing away, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of these five aggregates, subject to clinging. A monk is liberated by non clinging, then he is called a monk who is an arahant, one whose taints are destroyed, who has lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reaches, reached his own goal, completely destroyed the fetters of existence, One completely liberated through final knowledge
1: was done. All right. Thank you, Basam. So here the Buddha is giving a discourse about what's the difference between the first stage of enlightenment, that person's understanding and practice versus an arahant, someone who's actually enlightened. And remember that these teachings shouldn't be looked at in isolation, that there's multiple places where the Buddha kind of draws this information out because it's not just one thing that makes a stream enter different than an otter hunt or the first stage of enlightenment different than the fourth stage. There's multiple things. This is just one discourse where he's explaining one particular aspect of a stream enter's practice versus an otter hunt's practice. So here he's choosing to focus on the five aggregates. The five aggregates is what makes a being a being, the form aggregate, feeling, perception, Volitional formations and consciousness. He first introduces this in the Four Noble Truths. He talks about that the cause of discontentedness is clinging to the five aggregates. And in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment, what the Buddha is saying here is that a noble disciple, a stream enter, understands these five aggregates, understands the cause, the passing away, the gratification, the danger the escape and these are things that we covered in previous classes but we can review that if you guys would like so a stream answer hasn't yet liberated their mind they just understand that what's causing discontentedness is clinging to these five aggregates and that is one who is a stream enter no longer bound to the nether world. this is the lower realms of hell the animal realm and the realm of afflicted spirits and they're fixed in destination because once someone's a stream enter they're only going to experience a maximum of 7 more rebirths. So that's why he says it's they're fixed in destination with enlightenment as his destination or of course her destination too. So someone who's in this first stage of enlightenment it's a, it's a nice accomplishment because you're no longer going to be reborn in the lower realms, you're going to attain enlightenment either in this life or a maximum of seven lives. But now he talks about an otter hunt or an enlightened being. So having understood, so in order to become an otter hunt, the person would have already been a stream enter. So they would have already understood the cause, passing away, gratification, danger, and escape of the five aggregates subject to clinging. But the difference here is that an otter hunt, an enlightened practitioner, has been liberated by non-clinging meaning that their mind is no longer holding on to these five aggregates of form feeling perception volitional formations and consciousness that is one who is an otter hunt one whose taints are destroyed a taint are those fetters those 10 fetters or the higher level part of the way to explain those is the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots a taint is a pollution of mind so we call these the fetters the taints the pollution of mind so one who's on arahant would have destroyed the pollution of mind or eliminated the pollution of mind and then of course the buddha says you know this person has lived the holy life they've done what had to be done they laid down the burden the burden is that craving desire attachment The Buddha describes craving, desire, attachment as a burden, this mental longing with strong eagerness. So as long as we're carrying around this craving, it's a real burden to be longing and chasing after the objects of our affection. So someone who is an otter hunt, they would have laid down this burden of constantly chasing the objects of their affection. They've reached their goal. That's the goal of enlightenment completely destroyed the fetters of existence. That's those 10 fetters. One completely liberated through final knowledge. So whenever you see final knowledge, this is the Buddha referring to the ninth step of the tenfold path. An Arahant is not going to only be practicing the eightfold path, but they're actually going to be practicing the tenfold path. There's a ninth and a tenth step. The ninth step is called right wisdom the 10th step is called right liberation. And in order to practice these teachings and get to enlightenment, you would need to be practicing the ninth and 10th step. These aren't things that you actually learn like the five factors of well-spoken speech or other things like that that are part of the Eightfold Path. These are aspects of one's practice that you develop as part of the entire path that one practices right wisdom. And through practicing right wisdom, you then experience right liberation or liberation of the mind where it no longer experiences any discontentedness whatsoever. Someone who's attained final knowledge or right wisdom, accomplished this goal of eliminating all the pollution of mind as an hunt, they would be able to explain the teachings with ease, very clear, very concise. They would have no difficulties explaining exactly what the teachings are because they would have done a lot of learning, a lot of investigation in order to practice in such a way to attain enlightenment. So an arahant would be able to describe the teachings with ease if anybody should ask them any questions. Because their mind has deeply seen the truth, they've deeply practiced it, and once you actually make your way all the way to enlightenment, you will never forget that wisdom. The wisdom of what it took to go from this completely unenlightened mind off the path to being on the path and developing your practice all the way to the point of enlightenment once you get to that point and have acquired that wisdom or final knowledge you won't ever forget that wisdom of what it took to get to enlightenment so that's why an arahant or an enlightened being can just easily explain the teachings so clear and so precise. For anybody who's interested in learning the teachings it doesn't mean that every enlightened being or every otter hunt will be a teacher right they can choose to be a business person or a politician or a taxi driver or anything retired staying at home whatever somebody would like to do but they even in their role of a taxi driver or a retired person at home someone who's enlightened would be able to explain to you very clearly what the teachings are that led to their enlightenment in terms of what are the Four Noble Truths they would be able to explain to you, what causes discontentedness, the elimination, the path leading to enlightenment, and all these other teachings. So the distinction the Buddha is explaining here is that a stream enter understands the five aggregates, and that clinging to them causes discontentedness, and the Gratification, the danger, the escape, which the escape is the eightfold path. But a otter hunt will actually no longer be clinging to them whatsoever. And will have acquired this pure mind where they've eliminated all the taints or pollution of mind. And now they have final knowledge or wisdom. Questions on this chapter? There
3: doesn't appear to be any questions, teacher
1: David. All right. So let's move on to the next one, which is a similar teaching but it's a different version so that's why I mentioned that we shouldn't look at these in isolation as being the only teaching because the Buddha oftentimes shares other teachings that brings more information to our mind so here who do you have to read this one Manal that would
3: be myself oh okay difference in understanding of teachings between a stream enter and an Arahant second discourse Monks, there are these six sense bases. What six? The eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. When monks, a noble disciple, understands as they are really gratification, the danger, and the escape in this case of these six sense bases. Then he is called a noble disciple who is a stream enterer, no longer bound to the netherworld, fixed in destiny with enlightenment as his destination. Monks, there are these six sense bases. What six? the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. When monks, having understood as they really are the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of these six-sense bases, a monk is liberated by non clinging Then he is called a monk who is an Arahant, whose taints are destroyed, who has lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reached his own goal, completely destroyed the fetters of existence. One completely liberated to final knowledge, wisdom.
1: Okay, great. Thanks, Manal. So, this is a similar teaching as we just saw with a similar structure. But here, the Buddha is explaining the six sense bases. Because if you remember earlier in this book, the Buddha was explaining how a person who's accomplished in view would understand the five aggregates. And then there was another one where he said someone who's accomplished in view would understand the six sense bases. And he also talks about someone. Would understand dependent origination as well. Well, here it's the same structure as the last chapter we were looking at, but it's just about the six sense bases. So a stream answer will understand the six sense bases. They will understand what the six sense bases are, and they will understand that it's central desire, having mental longing and strong eagerness through these six sense bases that is causing the discontentedness. A stream answer will understand that. They will not have eliminated sensual desire yet but they will at least understand that's the problem and now in order to continue to move closer to enlightenment the fourth stage ultimately to get to even that third stage somebody would need to eliminate sensual desire and here the buddha is saying as a arahant, a fully enlightened being someone who's enlightened will have understood, as they really are, so because they would have already understood it as a stream enterer, that the mind is longing through these six sense bases, and that's causing discontentedness. And the Buddha is explaining that an arahant, or an enlightened being, will be liberated by this, that they will no longer have this clinging, this central desire through these six sense bases. And once somebody's done that, then they are an arahant. But of course, there's many other things besides just that. That's why it's important to never look at the Buddhist teachings in isolation, that this is just one aspect of an arahant's mind that they won't have central desire through any of these six sense bases whatsoever. And there's the same structure here with all the other details that I explained in the last chapter. Questions on this one?
3: We'll go to Ali for her question. I heard that um, if you are an Arahant, you can't be a, um, that you have to be a um, monastic. Not that you can't be a lay person anymore. Is
1: that true? That's not true. This is something that is a misunderstanding in some people's minds. They think that in order to attain enlightenment, you either have to be ordained, or some people say that if you attain enlightenment as a household practitioner. As soon as you attain enlightenment, you have to ordain, or else you're gonna die in like three days, or something like that. It's something silly. This is not true whatsoever. During the lifetime of the Buddha and even now, there's household practitioners who are enlightened and they haven't died after attaining enlightenment. And this is just a misunderstanding of the path. If it was required to be an ordained practitioner, you would see it as part of the Eightfold Path. You would see, you know right lifestyle, because essentially what ordained practitioner versus a household practitioner is, is it's a lifestyle choice. One person chooses to enter into ordained life and live through that path. Another person decides to stay in the household life. But this is just a difference in lifestyle in order to practice this path. There's nothing different about the mind of someone who's an ordained practitioner, versus someone who is a household practitioner. In the ordained life, it's more conducive for someone to attain enlightenment because they no longer have a career. They step away from their family. They have an environment that is more conducive to enlightenment, but it's not guaranteed by any stretch of the imagination. In the household life, it's more challenging, but it just requires more diligence, more dedication. It requires more wisdom, essentially, to move the mind into enlightenment from being in the household life. There's pros and cons to both the ordained life or the household life, but both of them can attain enlightenment either in the ordained life or the household life. There's nothing that would preclude someone in the household life from attaining enlightenment, and there's no requirement that one needs to ordain in order to attain enlightenment once they've attained enlightenment. During the lifetime of the Buddha, there were ordained practitioners who, once they attained enlightenment, stepped away and actually decided to be household practitioners after that. And then there were people who attained enlightenment as a household practitioner, and then they chose to ordain after they attained enlightenment. And then, of course, there were ordained practitioners who attained enlightenment and stayed ordained the rest of their life. And then there were people who attain enlightenment as a household practitioner and stayed in the household life the rest of their life throughout the remaining part of their life. So there's nothing like that that would preclude somebody from attaining enlightenment or else we would see it as part of the full path. And we wouldn't see household practitioners today that are actually enlightened. But because we know that that's not true, whenever you hear that, the Buddha said that when you become aware of something that somebody's teaching that doesn't match to his teachings, he says that you can ignore that and consider that that person has misunderstood the teachings. So if you look in this book series, there's a couple of places where the Buddha talks about ordained practitioners and household practitioners attaining enlightenment. So when you hear somebody say that you have to be ordained in order to attain enlightenment, The Buddha says when you compare what somebody says to what he said, and that it's different than what he said, just consider that that person has misunderstood the teachings and ignore what they said. So that was the guidance from the Buddha.
3: go to Boston next
5: for some questions on Facebook. Yes, on Facebook, Yuma has a question. Sayer, do all enlightened person become
1: arahant? In order to be enlightened, someone needs to be an arahant. So an arahant is a way to describe the fourth stage of enlightenment. The first stage is stream entry. The second stage is once returner. The third stage is non-returner. In the fourth stage we call arahant. If you're an arahant, you are an enlightened being. Or if you're in the fourth stage of enlightenment, you are an arahant. If you attain the fourth stage of enlightenment, you are an enlightened being. So, Arahant and enlightened being are synonymous. They mean the same thing.
5: Thanks, teacher. No more questions.
1: We'll
3: go to our next chapter, and Miranda will help read this one. Chapter 37.
4: One who cultivates fully reaches fulfillment, one who cultivates in parts succeeds in part. Monks, every half month, more than 150 training guidelines come up for a recitation. Clansmen who aspire for their own good train needs. These. these are all comprised within these three trainings. What three? The training in the higher virtuous behavior, moral conduct, the training in the higher mind, mental discipline, and the training in the higher wisdom. These are the three trainings in which all this is comprised. Here, monks, a monk fulfills virtuous behavior, concentration, and wisdom. He falls into wrongdoing in regard to the lesser and minor training guidelines and rehabilitates himself. For what reason? Because I have not said that he is incapable of this, but in regard to those training guidelines that are fundamental to the spiritual life and practice of the spiritual life, his behavior is constant and steadfast having undertaken the training guidance he trains in them. With the destruction of taints, he realizes for himself with direct knowledge, experience, in this very life, the taintless liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, and having entered upon it, he resides in it. If he does not attain and penetrate this, with the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, he is an attainer of nirvana, enlightenment, between one life and the next. If he does not attain and penetrate this with complete destruction of the five lower fetters, he is an attainer of Nibbana, enlightenment, upon landing. If he does not attain and penetrate this with the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, he is an attainer of Nibbana, enlightenment, without extra effort. If he does not attain and penetrate this with the complete destruction of the five lower fetters... He is an attainer of nibbana, enlightenment, with extra effort. If he does not attain and penetrate this with the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, he is one bound upstream, heading toward the heavenly realm. If he does not attain and penetrate this with the complete destruction of three fetters and with the diminishing of craving, anger, and ignorance, unknowing of true reality, he is a once-returner who, after coming back to this world only one more time, makes an end of discontentedness. If he does not attain and penetrate this with the complete destruction of three fetters, he is a one seed attainer who after being reborn once more in human existence, makes an end of discontentedness. If he does not attain and penetrate this with the complete destruction of three fetters, he is a family to family attainer who after roaming and wandering among wholesome families two or three times makes an end of discontentedness. If he does not attain and penetrate this with the complete destruction of three fetters, he is a seven at times at most attainer who, after roaming and wandering on among heavenly beings and humans seven times at most, makes an end of discontentedness. Thus, monks, one who cultivates fully reaches fulfillment, one who cultivates in part succeeds in part. This training and guidance, I say, is not unfruitful.
1: All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is talking about essentially creating a comprehensive life practice and really approaching it in a determined, dedicated and diligent way that if you approach this as a comprehensive practice, cultivating fully, then you reach fulfillment or you reach enlightenment. But if you kind of do little by little here and there, then what the Buddha is saying is, you know, you kind of succeed in little parts and little increments. And what he's talking about here is these 150 training guidelines. This is what they would recite every two weeks, essentially, as a way of being able to remember this oral tradition that the Buddha was sharing because everything he shared was oral. So he had his practitioners recite his discourses every two weeks word for word for word and there was 150 training guidelines that he shared that he had them recite as being the core of his teachings and what those training guidelines amounted to is the eightfold path here where he says the training in higher virtuous behavior this is the moral conduct of the eightfold path the training in the higher mind this is the mental discipline those upper three aspects of the Eightfold Path of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And then the training in the higher wisdom, this is the steps one and two, right view and right intention. So here he's pointing to the Eightfold Path, and then he talks about being able to fulfill this moral conduct, this concentration, which is the mental discipline, and this wisdom, and that if somebody falls into wrongdoing, that they would be able to rehabilitate themselves. Someone who's a stream enter wouldn't do something major or significant that would end up them being reborn in the lower realms. Instead, they will have, as a stream enter, just kind of these individual, kind of minor things that they're doing that are unwholesome, but yet they understand that and they're rehabilitating themselves. They're improving upon their practice because they have enough wisdom that they can see aha, uh-huh, I slipped up in my practice there. Let me improve that. Let me make it better, right? And then he goes through and he explains the various stages of enlightenment in a lot of detail. And he starts with enlightenment itself because that's the ultimate goal. And then he works his way all the way down to a stream enter. So we can talk about any of these that you like. I'm not sure that I need to go through every single one of these because I'm pretty sure we talked about these at different times, but he talks about all the individual types of stages of enlightenment. So here he talks about the three different types of stream enterers, which we've talked about at different times in this book, which is a one seed attainer, a family to family attainer, and a seven times at most attainer. These are the three different types of stream answers, and we tend to not really focus on these first two types anymore, because in order to determine this, it takes a lot of insight and a lot of wisdom that a Buddha would have, but the average person wouldn't necessarily have this level of wisdom, or nor would they need that necessarily level of wisdom. But the Buddha explains it as part of his teachings. As long as you get to stream entry and beyond, that's the ultimate goal, is to get to enlightenment itself. Some of these incremental aspects of you know the three different types of stream entry isn't as important as being able to just understand what it takes to get to stream entry and let's see this one here once returner you know that's something that we can talk about if you like this one here is a non-returner and then there's the different types of enlightened as well going from here so one two three four different types Of enlightenment that you might experience. But the goal is to get to enlightenment itself, which is the elimination of the ten fetters. So if you guys have any questions on any of those, just let me know. We can talk about them in more detail. Essentially, what the Buddha is describing here is develop a comprehensive practice and fully cultivate this path so that you can reach fulfillment, which is enlightenment, the fourth stage of enlightenment, an arahant.
3: It doesn't appear there are any questions for this chapter.
1: Okay, so we'll move on to the next one. As you see here, I've explained each step in the book one by one by one. All right, so now we're on chapter 38. This is the one that you guys would like me to read, right?
3: Um, I believe chapter 38 would be preferred if you're uh, we able to read that one and then chapter 39
1: okay so i'll go through this one so in 39 as well so seven kinds of persons found existing in the world similar to those in water now remember the buddha uses the water in order to talk about entering the stream right that's the first stage the stream enter entering in the stream the stream is the eightfold path and he uses this stream to describe going from the stream headed towards the ocean and the ocean is enlightenment and he even talks at different times about a log in this stream and how to ensure that the log doesn't get hung up in any particular way and makes its way to the ocean. So here he's talking about seven different types of people and he's talking about it in relationship to the water and throughout different traditions we oftentimes use water as a kind of a sign of purity right because water is what we use to kind of clean the body and clean different things in our life. So here it makes complete sense that he uses this analogy of water in different ways at different times in his teachings. And here he's talking about the different types of ways that one might come into these teachings and actually be successful with these teachings. So here it starts off. Monks, there are these seven kinds of persons found existing in the world, similar to those in water. What seven? One, Here, someone has gone under once and remains under, so remains under the water. Two, some person has risen up and then goes under. Three, some person has risen up and stays there. Four, some person has risen up, sees clearly and looks around. Five, some person has risen up and crosses over. Six, some person has risen up and gained a firm foothold. Seven, some person has risen up, crossed over, and gone beyond. A Brahmin who stands on high ground. Okay, so these are the seven different types of people, and he's going to kind of explain to you the qualities of mind and qualities of one's practice related to these, and so that you can have this analogy and this kind of picture of what it's like for these different qualities, and then you can cultivate the qualities that he sees as being wholesome so that you can make your way to enlightenment the first one here is in how monks is a person one who has gone under once and remains under here some person possesses exclusively black unwholesome qualities in this way a person who is one who has gone under once and remains under right so if someone's just completely unwholesome and that's all that they're interested in The Buddha is saying that person just goes under the water and they just stay under. Essentially, they're drowning, right? And a person ultimately would die in that situation. Two, and how is a person one who has risen up and then goes under? Here, some person has risen up thinking. Good is confidence in cultivating wholesome qualities. Good is a sense of moral wrongdoing in cultivating wholesome qualities. Good is moral concern and cultivating wholesome qualities good is energy and cultivating wholesome qualities good is wisdom and cultivating wholesome qualities so these are all things that the buddha teaches at other points in his teachings that are really important for us confidence in cultivating wholesome qualities having a good sense of moral wrongdoing having a good sense of moral concern and having good energy and cultivating wholesome qualities. That's putting effort and energy, putting enthusiasm and motivation, and then aspiring to cultivate wisdom of wholesome qualities. So these are all things that someone would be interested in cultivating. However, his confidence does not become stable or grow, but rather diminishes. His sense of moral wrongdoing, moral concern, energy, wholesome qualities, and wisdom does not become stable or grow but rather diminishes in this way a person goes under is one who has risen up and then goes under so this is a person who kind of sees the benefit of these wholesome qualities but then they don't actually work to grow them so then they kind of sink right and how is a person one who has risen up and stays put here some person has risen up thinking Good is confidence, so all of those good, wholesome qualities that we just talked about. His confidence neither diminishes nor grows. It just stays put. His sense of moral wrongdoing, his moral concern, his energy, and his wisdom neither diminishes nor grows. It just stays put. In this way, a person is one who is risen up and stays put. So... Here, the Buddha is talking about someone who understands these wholesome qualities. They've risen up. They can see these things, but then they don't actually apply any effort. They just kind of stay put, you know, kind of stay on the surface of the water, right? They're not sinking. They're not growing. They're not moving towards the ocean. They just kind of stay put right there. And how is a person, one who has risen up, sees clearly and looks around? Here, some person has risen up thinking okay, those good wholesome qualities that we discuss, with the complete destruction of the three fetters, right away when you hear that, you should think stream entry, this person is a stream enter, no longer subject to rebirth in the lower world, fixed in destiny, heading for enlightenment. In this way, that person is one who has risen up, sees clearly, and looks around, okay, Now the next one, number five, and how is a person one who has risen up and is crossing over? Here, some person has risen up thinking all those good wholesome qualities with the complete destruction of the three fetters and with the diminishing of craving, anger, and ignorance or unknowing of true reality. This person is a once returner who after coming back to this world only one more time, Will make an end of discontentedness it is in this way that a person is one who has risen up and crosses over so they've risen up over the water and they've kind of crossed over because they've worked enough to eliminate these three fetters and diminish the fourth and fifth fetter. six and how is a person one who has risen up and gained a firm foothold here some person has risen up thinking those good wholesome qualities with the complete destruction of the five lower fetters he is of spontaneous birth in the heavenly realm due to attain final nibbana or enlightenment there without returning from that world it is in this way that a person is one who has risen up and gained a firm foothold and now the seventh one is describing enlightenment and how is a person One who has risen up, crossed over, and gone beyond. A Brahmin who stands on high ground. Here, some person has risen up thinking all those wholesome qualities. With the destruction of the taints, or those fetters, those pollutions of mind, he has realized for himself with direct knowledge or experience, in this very life, the taintless liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, and, having entered upon it, he resides in it. It is in this way that a person is one who has risen up, crossed over, and beyond, a Brahmin who stands on high ground. These monks are the seven kinds of persons found existing in the world, similar to those in water. Questions on this one?
3: Question, Teacher Devo. Is there any difference between birth and spontaneous birth?
1: Yeah, spontaneous birth is typically described for formless beings where when we talk about birth for the human realm and for the animal realm, we think about, you know, kind of an egg, a sperm, there's a consciousness that comes into the physical body, it grows in the mother's womb, and then ultimately one is has birth. It's not spontaneous. There's multiple things that lead up to that birth. Where with spontaneous birth, that's typically the formless beings, like hell, afflicted spirits, and heavenly realm.
3: Okay. Um, Thank you. There are no other questions.
1: All right. So now we'll move off to chapter 39. Is that one you guys would like me to read as well, Mano?
3: Yes, please.
1: Okay. Take a little sip of water here. So chapter 39 nine persons passing away with a residual remaining are freed from hell. Okay, so residual remaining. What this is, is when somebody moves into those first, second, third stage of enlightenment, they've let go of a lot of craving, desire, attachment, but there's still a residual remaining. And we typically think about the once returner and the non-returner as kind of this residual remaining there's a residual amount of craving there's still a small amount of craving and here what you're going to read and understand is that one of the buddha's close students Sariputta, i think it was is off kind of talking to some other people as part of the other communities that they're not part of the buddhist teachings these are people who are learning from other teachers and these other students of other teachers are saying, oh, you know, if you have this residual remaining, then you're not free from hell. As long as there's a residual remaining, you're still bound to be reborn in hell. And Saraputa is kind of a little bit distraught by this and kind of like a little bit unsure and confused. And he actually goes off and talks to the Buddha. And he goes off and talks to the Buddha and gets the true teachings of, you know, is somebody who has a residual remaining amount of craving, are they freed from hell? Because these other communities are saying that if you still have a residual amount of craving, you're not freed from hell yet. So now after Saraputta hears this from these other communities and goes and talks to the Buddha, the Buddha gives him examples of people who still have a residual amount of craving, a small amount of craving but yet they are free from hell. So he kind of sets him straight on what the true teachings are. So here, the first part is just kind of explaining the scene and kind of helping you understand what's happening. On one occasion, the perfectly enlightened one was dwelling at this location, Saravata, at Jetty's Grove, which this is the location where the Buddhas did a lot of teaching in this area. Uh, This particular park, then in the morning, the Venerable Saraputta dressed, took his bowl and robe and entered for alms food. So when they were eating alms food, it wasn't just the Buddhist students, but it was other people's students who were collecting up donations from the household practitioners as well. And they would oftentimes all eat together from different schools and different places, different teachers. It then occurred to him, it is still too early to walk for alms food in Saravata. Let me go to the park of the wanderers of other communities. So he's going to go to this other park where other communities are, other students are. Then the venerable Seraputa went to the park of the wanderers of other communities. Here he exchanged greetings with those wanderers and when they had concluded their greetings and cordial talk, sat down to one side now on that occasion, those wanderers had assembled and were sitting together when this conversation arose among them. Friends, anyone who passes away with a residual remaining is not freed from hell, the animal realm, or the realm of afflicted spirits. He is not free from the plane of misery, the bad destination, the lower world. Then the Venerable Saraputta, who is Buddha's student, neither excited in nor rejected the statement of those wanderers, but rose from his seat and left, thinking, I shall find out what the Perfectly Enlightened One has to say about this statement. Then, when the Venerable Saraputta had walked for alms food in Saravati, after his meal, on returning from his alms round, he approached the Perfectly Enlightened One, paid homage or respect to him, and sat to one side. Here he reports verbatim the entire course of events and ends. I rose from my seat and left, thinking, I shall find out what the Perfectly Enlightened One has to say about this statement. So Sariputta explains to the Buddha what he experienced. And now this is the Buddha speaking. Who, Sariputta, Are those unwise and unskillful wanderers of other communities and who are those that know one with residual remaining as one with residual remaining and one without residual remaining as one without residual remaining so the buddha is like who is able to determine for themselves who has a residual remaining and who doesn't have a residual remaining because typically a buddha is able to figure that out but other people aren't necessarily going to be able to figure out who has residual remaining and who doesn't. So the Buddha is saying, who are these unwise and unskillful people who think they can determine who has a residual remaining and who doesn't have a residual remaining? Because the Buddha knows that him as a Buddha is able to do that, but the average person wouldn't be able to do that. So the Buddha is kind of curious, who, who have you been talking to? These nine persons, Sariputta, passing away with a residual remaining, are freed from hell, the animal realm, and the realm of afflicted spirits, freed from the plane of misery, the bad destination, the lower world. So even though these other students, these other people of other communities, say that if there's a residual remaining, you're still able to be reborn in the lower realms, the Buddha is saying, no, that's not true. And let me tell you the nine people who would still have a residual remaining amount of craving but yet they will not be reborn in the lower realms. And here he explains those nine people. Here, Saraputta, some person fulfills virtuous behavior or moral conduct and mental discipline or concentration, but cultivates wisdom only to a moderate extent. With the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, this person is an attainer of nibbana between one life and the next. This is the first person passing away with the residual remaining, who is freed from hell, the animal realm, and the realm of afflicted spirits, freed from the plane of misery, the bad destination, the lower world. Again, here's a second one. Again, some person fulfills virtuous behavior, moral conduct, concentration, mental discipline, but cultivates wisdom only to a moderate extent. With the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, this person, an attainer of nibbana upon landing. This is the second person with all of those same things that I said. Three, again, some person fulfills virtuous behavior, concentration, cultivates wisdom to a moderate extent. With the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, this person is an attainer of nibbana without extra effort. And this is the third type of person so he's describing a non-returner essentially and that this person is going to attain enlightenment in their next life or before they even get there and he's saying this person still has a residual amount of craving in that third stage of enlightenment as a non-returner but yet they were not reborn in the lower realms the fourth one again some person fulfills virtuous behavior concentration but cultivates wisdom only to a modest extent with the complete destruction of the five lower fetters that's still the non-returner third stage of enlightenment this person is an attainer of nibbana with extra effort right so this is another person who's freed of the lower realms again this person virtuous behavior concentration cultivates wisdom to a modest extent destruction of the five lower fetters so that's someone in the third stage of enlightenment This person is one bound upstream, headed towards the heavenly realm. So here this person is also freed from the lower realms. Again, some person fulfills virtuous behavior, cultivates concentration, wisdom to a modest extent. With the complete destruction of the three fetters, and with the diminishing of craving, anger, and ignorance, this person is a once-returner who after coming back to this world only one more time, makes an end of discontentedness. So this is the sixth person who's freed from the lower realms. Seven, again, some person cultivates virtuous moral conduct, concentration, wisdom to a modest extent. They've destroyed the three fetters. They're a one seed attainer. This is a a stream enterer. And the Buddha saying, this person also is freed from the lower realms. And then the eighth one, same things, but this is a family to family attainer. After roaming and wandering among wholesome families for two or three times makes an end to discontentedness. This is the eighth person. And then the ninth person, same thing, it's a stream enter who has seven times at most, and then they make an end to discontentedness. Who, Saraputa are those unwise and unskillful wanderers of other communities, and who are those that know one with a residual remaining as one with a residual remaining, and one without residual remaining as one without residual remaining? These nine persons passing away with a residual remaining are freed from hell, the animal realm, the realm of afflicted spirits, freed from the plane of misery, the bad destination the lower world saraputa i have not been disposed to give this teaching exposition to the male and female ordained practitioners the male household practitioners and the female household practitioners for what reason i was concerned that on hearing this teaching exposition they might take to the ways of complacency however I have spoken this teaching exposition for the purpose of answering your question. So here the Buddha is making had made a conscious choice in the past not to share this teaching with anybody because he was concerned that upon hearing this that people would then become complacent as part of his community. And he wasn't interested in people becoming complacent so he didn't share this teaching in the past but just to answer this question of Sariputta, He answered it for him. So here the Buddha is explaining that if there's a residual remaining amount of craving, then if you're in one of those three stages of enlightenment, first, second, third, stream entry, once returner or non-returner, you will have avoided the lower realms and no longer be reborn in the lower realms. Thus he's sharing the actual teachings that lead to enlightenment versus what Sariputta heard from other people. So, what questions do you guys have on this chapter
3: question on the uh, fifth um, uh, description of a person who's virtuous and has moral conduct cultivates wisdom Uh, what is the uh, understanding of moderate extent
1: meaning they haven't reached final knowledge yet so final knowledge or final wisdom everything would be complete moderate extent would mean not yet to final knowledge
3: is there a way to like better define the word moderate or what does that translate to in terms of the wisdom um i know that it means that one hasn't um achieved the final uh full wisdom uh, but if it's not if it's attained if the being has attained moderate uh wisdom to moderate extent i'm just trying to understand what that would translate
1: to exactly yeah notice he uses that same term in each one of these so they've cultivated enough wisdom to get to this third stage of enlightenment in this particular case but not yet final knowledge so in each one of these cases he explains moderate extent wisdom to a moderate extent so if you're in the first stage of enlightenment you've acquired and cultivated wisdom to a moderate extent enough to get to the first stage of enlightenment, but not to the second or the third. And then if you've attained the second stage, you've cultivated wisdom to a moderate extent enough to get to the second stage of enlightenment, but not enough to get to the third or the fourth, and then continuing on like that. So it's not going to be any more detailed than what we're sharing here that it's enough to get to the first, second, or third stage of enlightenment, and then in each individual stage of enlightenment, like this book here, he's explaining what is that wisdom that it takes to get to the first stage.
3: Okay, And also in the eighth description, um, person who has wisdom um, moderate to the moderate extent. But a person who is uh, born into family and wanders family to family, uh, would you please expand on
1: that? Yeah, so the Buddha has these three different types of stream enterers. The first, you know, if this was your very first life of making your way up to stream entry and boom, you've made it to stream entry and you died at that point. Then this person is a seven times at most attainer. So they will not be reborn any more than seven times. They are a stream enterer, but yet they're going to experience a maximum of seven more births. So now they've died in that stage of enlightenment, but now they're reborn and they make their way back to stream entry again. Now making their way back to stream entry, there's this stage that is called this family to family attainer. Okay. This person is not reborn any more than two or three times so maybe this is like their second or third time being a stream inter they've now are going to be reborn among wholesome families so they're going to have certain ease of acquiring the necessities to sustain their life that someone else who's born into a family that isn't so wholesome wouldn't be able to Focus and develop their practice as much because maybe they're having a tougher time getting the necessities to sustain their life. So someone who is reborn into a wholesome family would find it a bit more easy because they don't have to worry and work so hard to get the necessities to sustain their life. And the Buddha says someone who gets to this point will only be reborn in these families two or three more times. And then there's this one seed attainer for the stream enter who is only going to be reborn once more as a human being so after being reborn among families multiple times if someone didn't progress past stream entry they just kept coming back and being a stream enter over and over again then they might eventually get to this point where they're a stream enterer, but they're this one seed attainer where they will come back as a human being, again, one more time before making an end to discontentedness. So these are the three types of stream enters that the Buddha describes. But that's where I say that you don't have to necessarily know the distinction between those. It's it's kind of interesting information. But if you're a stream enter in this life, the only way that you would know whether you're a sure. one seed attainer or a family to family attainer, is if you had observed your previous lives and known that you were a stream enter in a previous life, if you had that observation and you knew that about your previous lives, then you would be able to figure out if you're a one seed attainer or a family-to-family attainer. But if you didn't have that insight, then you wouldn't be able to determine that. And it doesn't really matter because the ultimate goal is to not get to just stream entry but to get beyond that, where you actually attain enlightenment in this life.
3: Okay. Um, there are other questions, but um, I'll uh, continue to investigate on my own and circle back to you at a future time. Thank you. Okay. We'll go on to the next chapter now.
1: All right.
3: A stream enter knowing and seeing in these ways. Good monks, so you say this, and I also say this, when this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the elimination of this, that is eliminated. That is, with the elimination of ignorance comes elimination of volitional formations, choices, decisions. And with the elimination of volitional formations, elimination of consciousness. And with the elimination of consciousness, elimination of mentality, materiality. And with the elimination of name and form, elimination of the sixfold sense space. And with the elimination of the sixfold sense space, elimination of contact. And with the elimination of contact, elimination of feeling. And with the elimination of feeling, elimination of craving. And with the elimination of craving, elimination of clinging. And with the elimination of clinging, elimination of existence. With the elimination of existence, elimination of birth. And with elimination of birth, aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, pleasure, and despair is eliminated. Such is the elimination of this whole mass of discontentedness. One, monks, knowing and seeing in this way, would you run back to the past thus? Were we in the past? Were we not in the past? What were we in the past? How were we in the past? Having been what? What did we become in the past? No, venerable sir. Two, knowing and seeing in this way, would you run forward to the future thus? Shall we be in the future? Shall we not be in the future? What shall we be in the future? How shall we be in the future? Having been what, what shall we become in the future? No venerable, sir. Three, knowing and seeing in this way, would you now would you now be inwardly confused about the present thus? Am I, am I not, what am I, how am I? Where has this being come from? Where will it go? No venerable, sir. Four, monks, knowing and seeing in this way, would you speak thus? Our teacher is respected by us. We speak like this out of respect for our teacher. No venerable, sir. Five monks, knowing and seeing in this way, would you speak thus? Our ascetics says this, and so do other ascetics. It is only because of them that we say this. No venerable sir. Six monks, knowing and seeing in this way, would you acknowledge another teacher? No venerable sir. Seven monks, knowing and seeing in this way would you return to the observances, intense debates, and superstitious rites of various ascetics and Brahmins, taking them as the most important aspect of the holy life. No, venerable, sir. Eight monks, do you speak only of what you have known, seen, and understood for yourselves? Yes, venerable, sir. Good, monks, so you have been guided by me with this teaching, which is visible here and now, immediately effective, inviting inspection, onward leading, to be experienced by the wise for themselves. For it was with reference to this that it has been said, monks, this teaching is visible here and now, Immediately effective and inviting inspection onward, leading to the experience by the wise for themselves.
1: All right, thank you, Manol. So, here the Buddha starts off with explaining dependent origination again, kind of leading through his students to help them see the cause and effect relationship of dependent origination. So, now having understood dependent origination, he asks a series of questions that if you know the ultimate truth of what's causing this cycle of rebirth and what's causing this discontentedness to arise, he says, knowing and seeing this understanding of dependent origination, would you run back to the past? You know, and he gives all these different variations of that, you know, of what were to come about based on the past. And everyone's like, no, because we understand dependent origination and what we're facing right now. So no, venerable sir, We're not worried about what happened in the past. And then the second one is, well, would you run forward to the future and worry about the future? And his students answer, no, we wouldn't because we understand the here and now that the goal is to eliminate ignorance by acquiring wisdom and unravel this whole dependent origination to eliminate discontentedness. And we can't do that by allowing our mind to run to the past or run forward to the future. So the answer that the buddha gets back from his students is no venerable sir we're not interested in the past or the future it's this present moment right but even in this present moment knowing and seeing and understanding dependent origination the buddha asks, would you be inwardly confused in this present moment of what am i essentially or or how am i you know how did i come to be you know where will i go after this if you understand dependent origination you understand exactly how you came into existence in this life and you understand exactly what it takes to eliminate this cycle of rebirth in terms of all these causes and conditions so you won't be confused about how you came to be or where you will go after this should you not extinguish all of these causes and conditions so the answer that the students say is no we understand because we understand dependent origination we're not confused about how we came to be in this life or where we might go after this life should we not attain enlightenment and then the fourth one is would you after knowing and seeing dependent origination say our teacher is respected by us we speak like this out of respect for our teacher meaning We only share this teaching of dependent origination because our teacher told us to share it. And the the students are like, no, we're not going to share this teaching only because you told it to us. But essentially what they're saying is, we see the truth for ourselves that this teaching is 100% truth. We're not going to just share this teaching and speak about this teaching because you told us about this teaching. But instead, we've penetrated it with wisdom. We see the truth for ourselves. We share this teaching because we know it to be true. That's what they're essentially getting to. And then, number five, would you speak thus? Our aesthetic says this. Essentially, some other student told you about dependent origination. So, therefore, you're only going to share it because someone else told you about it. And the monks that he's talking to say, No, venerable sir, that's not why we would essentially discuss this or share this. But instead, they see it as truth, they see the real wisdom monks, knowing and seeing in this way, would you acknowledge another teacher? Because the Buddha knows that he's the only one sharing dependent origination and being able to put together all those causes and conditions. If somebody sees very clearly dependent origination and they have penetrated it very deeply to get to that first stage of enlightenment, then the Buddha says, would you acknowledge any other teacher? And then they say no, because we see the truth and the wisdom that you're sharing with us, essentially. Then he says, knowing and seeing this way about dependent origination, would you return to observances, those intense debates and superstitious rites of various aesthetics and Brahman, considering those to be the most important aspects of this holy life? And of course, they say no, because we understand What's keeping the mind in the unenlightened state is this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality. And the only thing that's going to fix that is transforming it to wisdom. These superstitious rites and rituals, these intense debates of who's right and who's wrong. Someone who understands these teachings isn't going to resort to those kind of things. So here his students say, No, you know, we're not going to go back to those superstitious rites and rituals because we see the truth that it's ignorance that's keeping our mind in this cycle of rebirth in this unenlightened state. So we can't transform that with rites and rituals. And then eight, monks, do you speak only of what you have known, seen, and understood for yourselves? In other words, are you not believing me, right? You're not believing what I said, but instead you've investigated this and you've penetrated it and you can see it with your own eyes. And then they say, yes, venerable sir, right? So they're not believing him, but they know it, see it and understand it for themselves. And then that's where he finishes it up with saying, okay, his teachings are visible here and now. They're immediately effective, inviting inspection, you know, come look, come look at the teachings, examine them for yourself. Because he knows that somebody can investigate these teachings and see the truth just like he did he saw the truth he didn't believe these teachings but he acquired this wisdom and by his students acquiring this wisdom and not believing it then they can also know the truth and bring it an into discontentedness as well so questions on this last chapter of today's class
3: Go to Ali for her question can you explain what the word in be
0: confused
1: yes inwardly confused is like the mind being confused about what it's understanding or trying to understand so inside the mind being confused okay.
3: thank you Yep. Uh, there doesn't appear to be any more questions
1: i see bassam has a hand up
3: oh I, yes you're right
5: yes uh, we have a question on facebook from numa sir after learning the teachings of the buddha why we find so many hurdles in reaching destination like there are many stages to attain enlightenment continuous effort will be helpful or does complacency happens due to one's residual cravings
1: so learning the teachings of the buddha is one thing but reflecting on them and practicing them to be able to see the truth and acquire wisdom is completely different So a practitioner can learn the teachings, straightforward enough perhaps, but then moving that into reflection and practice to actually improve the condition of the mind, that's where the real work is. There's a lot of work in learning them, but there's even more work in actually practicing them. And this is where the mind struggles and has difficulties, but that's also where you can understand that it's a gradual progression, that you don't need to be enlightened today. You don't need to be enlightened tomorrow. Or next week or next month. But instead, you work on this continuously throughout your life and you gradually get help, you gradually seek guidance, you gradually learn and reflect and practice these teachings to improve the condition of the mind. And where you observe complacency setting into the mind, then you antidote that with the seven factors of enlightenment in the seven factors of enlightenment the buddha explains that when the mind becomes sluggish or complacent that you practice the enlightenment factor of investigation the enlightenment factor of energy and the enlightenment factor of joy so the buddha understood the whole path to enlightenment and what you're going to encounter at different times along this path because he encountered those same things as well he encountered complacency along the path He encountered times where his mind was really excited because he had discovered and realized certain aspects of the teachings, and he got really excited about that. So he understood how to draw the mind into the middle and really train it to be disciplined. So he's given us all the tools that we need, but the mind needs to be dedicated and determined and diligent to gradually practice. The problem that a lot of people experience is that they want to be enlightened so bad. They crave that peacefulness. And then when they're not experiencing that enlightenment, then they get disgruntled and they have despair and they have more sorrow. So you've got to let that go. You can't even crave enlightenment itself. You have to eliminate all craving, desire, attachment, even craving for enlightenment. Instead, pursue it as a goal, an objective and an interest and just gradually work at it piece by piece by piece. But also don't get complacent and make sure that you're working on it as a comprehensive practice and gradually moving towards the goal.
5: Well, we have a question from uh, Parikshit. Venerable teacher, does a stream enterer sees the dependent origination sequentially instantly or they are able to understand it after they come out of concentration and reflecting upon that?
1: A stream is going to understand this dependent origination. They're going to understand the 12 causes and conditions, what each one of them are, and that one leads to the next. So if you look at chapter 14 of this book, same volume five, I explain it step by step. And the Buddha does too. The Buddha explains it in his words, which are much more detailed than what I share, But in chapter 14, I have the Buddha's words, and then I explain it afterwards, adding some more understanding to help you further understand it. So you will need to understand this in order to get to stream entry, because as I shared in the analogy, is the Buddha is setting you up with all the tools to get to base camp of Mount Everest so that you can plot your steps to the summit of Mount Everest. And if you don't have all the tools and all the equipment that you need to get to the summit, you're not going to get to the summit. And one of the tools that you need in order to get to that first stage of enlightenment and thus make your journey the rest of the way to enlightenment is you need to understand dependent origination, all the 12 individual steps and how one leads to the next. And in chapter 14 of volume five, you'll see that.
5: Thanks, No more questions.
1: All right. Anything else from you, Manal? would be all teacher david all right so in our next class we're going to be finishing up this book volume 5 the first stage of enlightenment stream entry Uh, what we're going to do is go from chapters 41 all the way to the end which is chapter 53 so it's about 12 chapters that we'll cover this week Uh, maybe 12 or or 13 uh, something like that so Be sure to read those before class, maybe before and after class. That way, when you come to class, you're more informed. But if for some reason you weren't able to get to it, you didn't prioritize it in your life, then still come to class because we'll have a good interactive discussion together. But if you read before and or after, it will really help you to progress on this path. Tomorrow in the group learning program, we're going to be in Volume 1, Chapter 16, which is Dissolving the Ego the ego serves no purpose. Here, I'm going to dive really deeply into personal existence view and how to realize non-self, which is really important for the first stage of enlightenment. And we're going to talk about eliminating the fetter of conceit, which is one of the higher fetters in order to get to enlightenment. So in that talk tomorrow, I'm going to be discussing two specific fetters. The first one, personal existence view, and the eighth one, which is Conceit. And both of those need to be eliminated to get to enlightenment. But specifically for the first stage of enlightenment, we need to eliminate personal existence views. So we'll be discussing that in our class tomorrow. And then on Wednesday, we'll be doing our meditation, which is loving kindness meditation this week. So I'll see you either next Saturday for the remaining part of this book, or perhaps Sunday and Wednesday for our group learning program as well. Maybe I'll see you all of those days. So in the meantime, have a lovely rest of your day. We'll see
0: you in a future class. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com.